Hey, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Josh. I serve as one of the pastors here. I'm happy to be with you this morning. We're in our final week of our Be Real series from the book of James as we wrap this up at every Bridgewater location today. We, we hope it's been as helpful for you to take in as it has been uh, for us to prepare. Uh, I love vacation. Anyone here love vacation as well? You just love getting away. You love the time to unplug from everything you normally do, the stresses, the routines, the responsibilities, sometimes the people that you have to see as a part of your normal rhythm of life. I love the opportunity to just get away. We've taken vacations over the years as a family, all six of us, of varying lengths, and this past summer was quite the exception. We took an extended vacation, a chance to do sort of a bucket list trip before our kids start leaving the home. I I think they're leaving. Um, But it was really, really good. Um, But one thing that I seem to fall prey for every time is that I have this expectation that I can actually leave my problems behind. Like vacation means no problems, no stresses, and uh, I don't know. It's a cruel it's a cruel trick, but I seem to fall for that one every time. This past summer, we found ourselves in Zion National Park. We were surrounded by the beauty of this place. It is really breathtaking. This is from a place called the Narrows. It's a hike you can do uh, through and on and in water and uh, really, really uh, quite amazing. Um, and so I was looking forward to getting to places like this and unplugging, just being with the people I love the most, no conflict, no issues, none of that. And there were times for sure where we were having a great time. This is one such time we were just having a blast. But when we got to our, our site to camp, I was getting the tent ready to set up. And here's what was going on. It, it was afternoon, evening time, and the temperature was about 105 degrees in the valley, and the ground that I was supposed to hammer my stakes into was pretty much like concrete. And so I'm just drenched with sweat. I'm tired from a long day uh, in the car, and everyone else is too, but I'm asking for help. Kristen is standing over our stove, boiling water um, in the heat in order to, to prepare our food, and my kids are sitting on the picnic table, scorching their thighs, um, and I asked for help. That's all I did. Hey, can somebody please help me get these uh, tent pegs in? And uh, you would have thought I asked them to do something horrifically awful or terrible. Well, almost no response, and so I got, unsurprisingly, Uh, impatient and irritable, and I started barking out commands. And what was coming out of me was anything but the the tender love of a father. And uh, so it was not one of our better moments. And it was in that moment I realized I had not outrun my problems. I brought them all with me. (laughs) Now you think that sounds cruel. (laughs) But what I mean to say is even if I was there all alone, I would have had my fair share of problems because my problems were not the five people with me. My, my problems were right here. They were me. It was, it was me. I was the problem. Um, it can be so disappointing to realize that you are the one thing that you and all your problems have in common. 
You are the common denominator in every single problem that you experience in your life. And if we know that's true, we would be wise then not to look around at how we can fix everything and everyone else, but we would be wise to look right here, look right in the mirror and see what we can do about that. Because the truth is that you and I are often the biggest contributor to our problems. And not always because we're the cause, but sometimes because of our response to the experiences and people in our lives. There, but if, if you're like me, there's something natural about finding something or someone else to blame. It just feels right. After all, I'm right nearly all the time. And the times I'm not, I'm just mistaken. So what we need to do is we need to look around and realize that everything and everyone out there is not the primary place to look, but it's in the mirror where we need to look. And James, in chapter 4 of his letter, he gets real with his people and he says, time for you guys to look in the mirror. And the way he confronts them is, is really kind of startling. Um, he brings up a surprising cause to the problems that they were experiencing. In fact, I read this and I think, okay, so... So here's the problem that I was experiencing on vacation. My problem and the cause of my problems in my life is my desires. It's not my wife. It's not my kids. It's not my coworkers. It's not, it's not your boyfriend. It's not your girlfriend. It's not your ex. It's not the government. It's not your teacher. It's not your coach. It's you. And it's your desires. And it's me. And it's my desires. And he's, he confronts them with the surprising effects their desires have on their lives. Today, we're going to discover how our desires can be tremendous, a tremendous enemy to a life of real faith or a great ally to a life of real faith. That is where we're driving today. And if we're willing to make some honest admissions about our desires, I think we can make some progress and learn to lean into our desires where we can learn from them and actually they can begin to benefit our life as we work to follow Jesus together. So it's on the screen, it might be on your device, might be in your open Bible, James chapter four, verse one. Here's how he begins. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James, in his stereotypical fashion, begins this talk by asking a question. He's basically saying, what's your guys' problem? Why are you fighting all the time? Why all this mess? It's the question that every parent of children asks. What is your problem? What are you doing? Why are you the way that you are? You see, we have problems, and these problems are caused by our desires, but we don't look there. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, God confronted Adam, and Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and we take cues from our earliest ancestors, and we look for someone or something to blame anyone but ourselves. And James, knowing this about the people he was writing to, sets the record straight and delivers the heartbreaking but essential truth that their problems were not out there. Their primary problems were right here, okay? The blame was theirs, and it had to do with their desire. So the first admission that we need to make to live a life of real faith is this. My desires can cause conflict, with, other, with others. My desires can cause conflict 
with others. If we're going to understand the problems in our lives, you and I have got to understand our desires and how they work. You see, you and I are creatures of desire. We're always desiring. Desires are what get us up in the morning. Desires are what cause us to go to bed at night. Desires cause us to be driven with discipline to accomplish one thing while running with all of our might away from the responsibility of something else. It has to do with desire. They sculpt every relationship in our lives. Desires are the lenses through which we view every situation. Every relationship. And in that little phrase, your desires that battle within you, James gives us a window into how our heart operates. Author, speaker Paul Tripp says, the heart of every person is a fountain of competing desires. We, you and I rarely do anything with one simple motive. It's always just sort of a, an endless fountain of desires. You think of it this way, and I, I know I don't need to work really hard uh, to relate to you on this one, you want to come home after a long day at work. Whatever work is for you, you just want to come home and you desire just a few minutes to rest. You desire a cold drink or another cup of coffee or you just want to lie down for a few minutes or you want to get in a run or a workout. Problem is, the people in your home waiting for you also have desires. And what you do in that moment will determine really will reveal what desire wins out in that moment. The desire that wins will shape your behavior when you get home that night. It's interesting that this word James uses, desires. He ends up using a couple different words for desires in this passage, but this one really means pleasures. It's where we get the word hedonism. It's things that we enjoy. It's the pursuit of pleasure. And James says, you all have a pursuit of pleasure. You all just sort of want to please yourselves. That's normal. That's natural. And James pictures these pleasures residing in his audience, carrying on a bitter campaign for victory. They're at war, he says, within you. Pleasure, in this case, was their overriding desire. And James says, when you give in to, our, when you give in to your desire, it can cause conflict with other people. Why? Because they want something different than you do. Well, I want... Well, I want, well, who's going to win? And that's the problem. And when I give in to my desire, I won't let anyone or anything stand in the way of me fulfilling that desire. But there's something else he's saying in this verse, and that's not only that these desires can cause conflict with others, but these can cause conflict within yourself, within myself. They're desires that battle within you. So not only do they cause fights and quarrels with other people, but I'm in conflict with myself. It's competing desires. I'm conflicted. I don't know what I want, or I don't know what I want more. I'm just not sure which way to go. And so I even violate my own standards at times and tick myself off. I can't even please myself sometimes. So not only do people do me wrong because of their desires, I do people wrong because of my desires, but I do myself wrong because of my own desires. So it really gets down to this. People of real faith, if we're going to be real this morning, we have to admit that the greatest threat to our life of real faith exists not outside me, but inside me. It's not the culture. It's not the government. It's not the enemies of Jesus. Those who stand opposed to him. It's me. It's my heart. It's you. And it's your heart. And maybe this morning, there's someone that you need to reconcile with 
because of a conflict of desires. So desires can cause conflict with others and with myself, but that's not all James has to say. Let's keep reading. First part of verse 2. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. It's important to point out here that James says you desire. He doesn't say you desire wrongly. He just says that you desire, all right? So it's not wrong to desire, and it's not wrong to desire certain things. The point James is making is that our desires have an important role to play, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But if we're not careful, we will just be led and guided by whichever desire wins in the moment, whether it's for something right or if it's for something wrong. But it's important that you need to recognize that desires don't need to be wrong to be destructive. All right? It's not wrong to desire rest. It's not wrong to desire food. It's not wrong to desire companionship. It's not wrong to to desire all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be a wrong desire to be destructive. All I've got to do is let it be in charge. And then you're in the way when I can't get it because whatever controls our heart will exercise inescapable influence over our lives and our behavior. So the second admission from this passage we need to make is this. My desires can cause me to sin. My desires can cause me to sin. We've got to keep our desires in check. When we don't keep them in check is when we go off the rails. And James tells us in verse 2 that the cause of our conflicts with people is the inordinate amount of weight we give our desires, the over inordinate amount of control we give our desires. We've got to be careful not to allow any old desire to rule our hearts. James says in this verse, there are two ways that our desires can cause us to sin. The first is when I'm willing to sin to fulfill my desire. If I'm willing to sin in order to get what I want, I have crossed a line. I have crossed the line. Anytime I mistreat, exploit, say a hurtful word or harm someone in order to get what I want, I have allowed a desire to rule my heart. So let's go back to coming home after a long day of work, a long day expending your energy, and you want some rest. You want to work out. You want a cup of coffee, whatever it is. If that desire wins and the people in your home get in the way of it, If you're at all like me, you are tender and gentle (laughs) and compassionate and just laying down your desires for the sake. No, you're not, right? If you're like me, you want what you want. And whether my wife or my kids get in the way doesn't matter. That's when I resort to saying harmful things, acting in an unkind way, being irritable, being impatient, disengaging, just being aloof from my family because I just want what I want. And if I'm willing to sin or to sin against you in order to get what I want, I have gone off track. He says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. That's, that's what he's getting at here. Uh, that, we're in big, big trouble here. When he says kill, it could mean physically, but think of the other things that my desires could kill. Relationships, peace, opportunities for fun or engagement. It can kill a workplace culture, church unity. It can be deadly. 
but it doesn't stop there. Verse 2 goes on to explain that sometimes we can't fulfill our desire. We can't get what we want. So the second way our desires can cause us to sin is when we sin if we can't fulfill them. He says, you covet but cannot obtain, so you quarrel and fight. So I can't get what I want now. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pull a, ta- a, a toddler move, and I'm going to throw a tantrum. So I act like a child. So when I come home wanting rest and none can be found, I just can't have it, well, then I'm just nasty to be around anyway. Well, that's great. That's good. The problem is, again, when you and I get in this spot, we don't look in the mirror. We look at all the people who are in the way of us getting what we want. And our anger and our hurtful words reveal very important things about our heart and what we have cultivated to want the most. What we have allowed to have a a supreme reign in our hearts. So in those moments when I come home and that's me, my anger caused my completely legitimate desire for peace and rest to rule me. And then I just bowed to its will. In Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, he outlines six stages of this war in our heart. He says it begins with the desire. That's what we're talking about here. I have a desire. This is just something I want. And if I'm not careful, I'll begin to close my fist around that desire, and that desire morphs from desire to demand. And now I've got to have it. This is something I'm pursuing. And if we don't check it there, what happens is this demand becomes something essential for life. It turns into a need. And now I've convinced myself that I cannot live without it. And now that I need it, I have an expectation that it will be fulfilled and you will help me fulfill it. In fact, if you have said you love me, you will help me get it. But then you don't, and I'm disappointed. And so I'm disappointed in you because you failed to meet my expectations. You didn't help me. You didn't come through for me. And because you didn't, you're going to pay, and I'll punish you. And I'll punish you through my hurtful words, through my hurtful actions, through my passive-aggressive behavior. I will find any way I can to send a message to you You let me down. All because I let a desire go unchecked. Can you just imagine the wake of destruction left behind when this is the pattern that we live our lives according to? Yes, you can. Because you've been on the receiving end of this. And the harder truth to accept is that you've been on the giving end of this. And so have I. And that's why James is delivering these hard but essential truths to his audience. It's vital for us to recognize that the things we set our hearts on never remain under our control. They will begin to control us. We are creatures of desire. They capture 
They control, they enslave us, they set the course for our words and behavior. This is the danger of desires. They battle, and whatever gets your allegiance gets your behavior. After all, control is the purpose of war. And as we've learned in this series, sin is so sneaky and so insidious. I want to stop here and ask, what desire might you have that you have sinned in order to fulfill or, or are sinning because you cannot fulfill it? Sin plots and schemes to work every advantage. And not only then does it affect how I view myself and it affects how I view you, a tragic effect of my desires, if I let them go unchecked, is that it, they affect my view of God. I begin to view God differently because of this dynamic working in me. Rather than viewing God, as James described and we covered in week one, as the giver of every good and perfect gift, we now view as someone of whom we're suspicious. Because he's not providing for me what I want. If he loved me, he would. Doesn't God want me to have good things after all? And we lose confidence in him. He's no longer our Lord, our master, the one whom we serve. He's the delivery service. And if he doesn't deliver on time, and he doesn't deliver the right thing, or he says, mm-mm, I'm not giving that to you, then we assume the problem is with him. Again, we blame. Look at how James puts this at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Let's keep going. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James, like, he hits a, a base hit with the first one. He probably extends it to a double or triple with the second one. And with these verses, he's just, he's rounding the bases. The problem is not with desires in and of themselves, but the priority we give to them. And here James gives us the third admission we need to make if we're going to be real about our faith, and that is this. My desires can cause me to doubt God. They can cause me to look at God in an unfair way that is not true to who he is and who the scriptures reveal him to be. If my heart is ruled by a desire for a certain thing, it will affect my relationship with God in two essential ways. First, it, will, it might very well keep me from praying. He says, you do not have because you don't ask God. You don't even ask. Why don't you ask? Because you're not going to ask someone that you don't trust. You're not going to ask someone who you think might fail to deliver. If you're suspicious of God or think that he doesn't want you to have good things, why would you ask him anyway? So we get ourselves into trouble by looking around for how we can fulfill our desires because we're not going to ask him because we have now grown suspicious of him. He's holding out on us. Why would he do that? And the sad truth about desires is they can cause us to deny what we know because of how we feel. And we can give way too much control to our emotions. I want to show you three primary ways. I, okay, this is not we, this is not an all play. Maybe you can relate, but this is just for my own life. Here are the ways that I find myself doubting God. And this is what I've seen over my years serving in the local church. When I begin to give my desires too much control, 
too much credit, I do begin to question God. And what I've, what I've had to work to, to do is to create some boundaries that help constrain my thinking to keep me from living by how I feel and living according to what I know. The first way I begin to doubt God is I begin to doubt that he is good. So I have to remind myself when I'm getting bound up, I've given too much control to any of my desires. I have to remind myself that God is good. Psalm 118.29 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. I've got to say, okay, I cannot, I cannot break the boundary of God being good. The second boundary I cannot break is that God is loving. He loves me. God loves me. God is love. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I have to remind myself God is good and God loves me. And the third thing I have to remind myself, the other boundary that helps constrain my thinking is that God is trustworthy. I can trust him. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says God is faithful. That word is he can be trusted. If ever I begin to doubt his goodness or his love or his trustworthiness, I am vulnerable. I'm in trouble. So these boundaries are a guide for my thinking and help me make sense of my experiences. No matter what I experience, I have to remind myself that this does not mean that God is not good. No matter what I encounter does not mean that God is not loving. And no matter what happens in my world does not mean that God is not trustworthy. He is good. He is loving. He is trustworthy. If I can just settle myself there within those boundaries, I can begin to make sense of my experiences. And begin to believe that God is actually working for me, for my good, and not against me. And he knows better than I do what I need. James straight up just tells these people, you guys don't even have because you don't ask God. Because they've stopped trusting him. And I do wonder, and it haunts me from time to time, what might God be willing to give me if I simply just asked what is on the other side that could be a part of my life if I would just ask? Think of the types of prayers you would begin to pray if you believed that God wants the best. How about for our church? How about for how we impact this community? How about for the family members and friends that we know? Do you know we celebrated six people trusting in Jesus as their forgiver and leader this week? Do you know we have not had one adult salvation from Montrose campus since last year. I don't ever want that to be the case because I didn't ask God. Our children, our grandchildren, what do we want for them? What do we want to see happen in their lives? Let it not be because we did not ask God but we won't. We won't ask him if we doubt his goodness, his love, or his trustworthiness. And I wonder how might your desires have affected your view of God? Has it, have they caused it to be flawed? Now James says at times they did ask. He says when, when you do ask, you ask wrongly. <laughs> how do you ask wrongly? Well, he says you want to spend it on your own pleasures. 
There's that word again. Whether you something you want so much or it's a pleasure that you want, James says at times, yeah, you do ask God, but you're only asking because you think he's just the heavenly Amazon. Just making deliveries. All you got to do is click, and it's there. Might even come by a drone, but it's coming. My desires can affect my relationship with God, not only by my view of God, but by affecting my desires and making them selfish. It shapes our prayer life. Rather than being our master, we want Jesus to be our servant. And sometimes we use prayer as a cloak for our desires. But I prayed about it. Becomes one of the biggest excuses we make. Oh, we prayed about it all right. But we prayed that God would just fulfill our desire. We never once stopped to ask God whether we should have this desire. And then we get angry with him when he doesn't deliver. And then that anger spills out over into the people and circumstances of our lives. So it's clear that we are creatures of desire. We bring our desires with us wherever we go. If we're not careful, these desires will rule our lives, affecting every relationship with, uh, we have, even our relationship with God. Is there any hope? Basically, what James has told us is, yeah, you have desires, and they're hurting you. I said earlier that there is a way to lean into our desires, to learn from them, and even leverage them for our benefit. So let's talk about how, and here's where we find hope. Because James didn't stop writing in verse 3. He kept going. Check it out. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James tells his readers that they need to humbly approach God and submit their desires to him. And he will come near to us. He will help us. He will lift us up away from our selfish desires and give us joy in doing what pleases him. And where do we find strength to humble ourselves and submit our desires to God? We find it in no other place than Jesus himself. Jesus You see, Jesus acknowledged his desires before going to the cross to pay for your sin and mine. He acknowledged his desires. He said, Father, please don't make me do this. Let this cup of of wrath pass from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, you see, Jesus had desires too. But his desire to obey God the Father and his love for you and for me overruled his own personal desire. And he went to the cross. And he gave us power, not only sin's penalty, but power over the desires that we have that want to capture, control, and enslave us. That's where we find hope. That's where we find strength. 
So the goal, listen, the goal is not to run from desire, but to ask God in his strength and in the power of Jesus to replace our desires with higher desires and better desires, to do what pleases him. Desires like Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 10.31, where he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. My desire to glorify God in everything I do should be my chief desire. Paul says a similar thing in a different way. 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. My chief end is to honor God, to please him. So we're not running from a desire. We are asking God to replace our normal human desires with those desires so that those win out in the, in the circumstances and relationships of our lives. Because we're creatures of desire. But through the power of God, our desires can be replaced. And we can lean in to the desire to please God above all things. And in this way, our desires can turn from enemies to great allies of real faith. Jesus came for those who are held captive by their own selfish desires. He can do that for you today. If you would let him. So today, like James told his readers to do, take a good look in the mirror. There you will find the source of the problems in your life. And you can bring those to Jesus because we cannot outrun the problems in our lives because we cannot outrun ourselves. But we can do something about our desires. Let me give you two suggestions that we've kind of already talked about. One, submit my desires to God. How? God, here they are. Here's what I want. But I want, I want to want what you want more than what I want. Would you please help me? Prayer is an excellent way to do this. In fact, next week we're going to begin a brand new series called In Tune. And we're going to talk about prayer and fasting next week. Prayer and fasting, those are excellent ways to lay down our own desires and pick up God's desires. So join us next week if you would. The second way we can do this is to run to God, even bringing him your doubts. If you have found this morning that you are questioning God, doubting him, suspicious of him, he's not running from you. He says, draw, draw near to me. And he will draw near to you. So if you're wrestling with doubt, bring him to God. He can handle him. He invites you. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, run to Jesus today, because though we can't outrun our desires, we, we also can't outrun God's love for us, and there's hope in that. Would you pray with me? God, we need your help, and I praise you today and thank you because you're willing to give it. You do not, you don't just stand in judgment, but you looked at us our wrong desires and all, and you offer us hope and help and offer to replace our desires for something better that not only pleases you, but ultimately satisfies our hearts as well. And I pray that you would turn us from people who think we can only be satisfied by having what we want, that we would be satisfied 
by giving you what you want and truly even deserve. So thank, thank you for your posture and thank you for your power for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.